I'm Tom Morello, and you're listening to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, we've got a great show. We, indeed, we do. And one of the things that makes it great is the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. We're going to start today's show with our continuing analysis of the Ukraine crisis. Our first guest will be Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He joined us last September to walk us through the United States illegal war in Afghanistan, our war crimes, corruption, and disastrous withdrawal. Rather than enjoying peace for the first time in 20 years, are we about to spend trillions of dollars on another criminal war? Events are moving quickly as we record this, but we'll ask Colonel Wilkerson to shed some light. Our second guest will be Howard University Professor Clarence Lusain. For more than four decades, Professor Lusain has studied human rights, anti-racism, politics, and black social movements. He has consulted on Capitol Hill, and as a scholar, researcher, policy advocate, and activist, he has traveled to over 70 nations. In his new book, $20 and Change, Professor Lusain examines something closer to home, the $20 bill. We'll ask him about his book, the campaign to replace Andrew Jackson with Harriet Tubman on our currency, and what that ongoing debate reveals about America's relationship to race and history. Then if we have time, Ralph will answer a listener question. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, as the news about the situation in Ukraine changes minute to minute, what are the more longstanding principles that can be applied to resolving this conflict? David? Lawrence Wilkerson is a retired U.S. Army colonel, distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary, and former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yes, welcome indeed, Larry. We're going to start with Ukraine because our listeners have heard some of our guests talk about Ukraine. They have some familiarity I always point out that the western frontier of Russia has been invaded three major times by Napoleon and by the Kaiser in World War One and by Hitler with tens of millions of fatalities, casualties, and destruction. I think the casualty toll in the siege of Leningrad itself was 750,000 people, which compares with what the U.S. lost in World War II of some 450,000 people in both the Pacific and European theaters. So the suffering of Russians from their western frontier can frame something of what's going on here in the dispute regarding Ukraine. Ukraine was, as we all know, part of the Soviet Union until the Soviet Union broke up. And the memories of the Russian people are very deep here about security on the Western frontier, which is why Putin can feel comfortable in doing what he's been doing. So give us your take, Larry, about both this so-called dispute and the U.S. government's response along with NATO so far. I'd go back even further than you, Ralph. I wrote a poem about it once when I was in university when Prince Nevsky defeated the Huns and others mercenaries mostly on Lake Pepys, when the ice broke on the lake and swallowed all the opposition. So Russia has been fearful of those borders for many, many years. 
And Ukraine has been since, as I recall, Catherine the Great, a part of, quote, Russia, unquote. Indeed, today, some of his most important tank foundries and also artillery cannon foundries are in Ukraine. The Ukrainians today probably regret the decision, but there was no real fight over it at all when Russia, then the USSR, decided under Gorbachev to let us begin to help them destroy their nuclear weapons and to indeed come down from the some 30,000 weapons they had. Ukraine, of course, having many of those weapons, turned them back over to Mother Moscow with no real argument about it. Today, they would probably say, well, that's something we shouldn't have done. But that's one leadership in Kiev that might say that. Perhaps Ukrainians in general wouldn't say that. Um, It's a long history. And I certainly understand I don't support Putin. I don't think Putin is a very good leader. I don't think his way of wiping out his opposition is particularly savory. But I do understand his strategic grasp, and I do understand the fact that his military leaders are very frightened by the creep of NATO. I shouldn't say the creep, the onslaught of NATO. Indeed, my president, George W. Bush, went to Tbilisi and standing by the Georgian president declared Georgia would be a member of NATO in the future. What a colossally stupid thing to do. And yet we did it. And we've been doing it ever since, largely so Lockheed Martin and others could sell their wares to more and more countries in the world. And I don't blame Putin for what he what he has done in standing up to our expansion of NATO. Yeah, this was a military alliance formed after World War II, directed at the Soviet Union. And it was in Western Europe and the U.S. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, contrary to, as you say, assurances, from the U.S. during the unification of Germany, which Russia agreed to and didn't try to dispute. Those assurances were powerful. I just had a a debate, literally, with one of my old friends over Jim Baker supposedly having come back and recanted and said that, no, when he got back to Washington, the assurances that coal had been given in Germany and Sherbet-Madze and Gorbachev had been given in Moscow— were not acceptable to George H.W. Bush. Well, my man, Colin Powell, my boss at the time, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, due to Goldwater Nichols, attended all the NSC meetings. He was the principal by Goldwater Nichols. The change to the 1947 National Security Act, the penultimate amendment, he was the principal advisor, the principal military advisor to the president, the NSC, and the secretary of defense. So he went to the meetings, and he never came back and told me anything about that. And he debriefed me on all the meetings. So as far as I was concerned, Powell's euphoria, he was ecstatic even about what was happening, that Russia was possibly going to be an observer at NATO and maybe even eventually a member of NATO. And where did we go astray in that history? Where do we go from that uh, halcyon time when the Cold War was over and H.W. Bush, to his inestimable credit, did not want to beat his chest, did not want to trumpet? did not want to you know, claim victory and so forth, just wanted to get on with the, as he called it, the new world order, a peaceful world order. What happened to all of that? What happened to all that happiness and joy, if you will, at the end of the Cold War and the prospect of peace? Well, Bill Clinton largely happened to it when in 1994 he decided that he needed some more foreign policy bona fides. And oh, by the way, he needed some more contributions from people like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Grumman and so forth, and more bona fides in the national security field. 
So he began a very rapid expansion of NATO with no consideration whatsoever for what the other side, in this case, Russia, might think. Larry, exactly what's the nature of the expansion? They put out feelers to Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, asking them to join. What was the nature of the expansion? And was there a quid pro quo where they had to buy F-16s and other U.S. weapons? It was always considered to be a progress that would go slowly and over time. I remember Bill Perry, one of Bill Clinton's secretaries of defense, telling me as I visited him with my Marine Corps Wallace Sem- seminar, and he'd just come back from Moscow. He'd just come back for several days in Moscow. And he was as euphoric as Powell had been before about what was happening. There was a plan that we would march very slowly with all the former Warsaw Pact countries considering not just NATO membership, but EU membership. And that plan would unfold very, very slowly, methodically, and it would unfold only as they came to be able to meet the requirements of both EU and NATO. And, and by the way, NATOs were more rigorous than the EUs, and it would unfold only as Russia said, okay, that's good, okay, that's good, okay, that's good, and we all nodded our heads in accordance with that initial agreement. What happened was that you have, I was just on a webinar with the Quincy Institute on this very thing, you had the CEOs and other people working for these now global, they're not just U.S., they're global arms manufacturers and arms merchants. You had them insinuating themselves into the their equivalents, incipient though they were, within these new countries. And they become embedded with one another. And then you start getting, I need this, I need that. And you make this and you make that. And so very soon you have the kind of relationship we have with Saudi Arabia today, where you don't know the difference between the Saudi side and the U.S. side because they're linked. They're joined at the hip and they share in the profits and they share in the ventures and they share in the weapons building and the weapons use. We've done this all over the world. And we were salivating at the prospect because some of the lines, the cruise missile line, for example, the F-16 line, for example, they were going into low rate production or they were going coal, like the tank line recently did. And the Congress stepped in and we made tanks that are now stored up in the mountains that we'll never use, but that cost the American taxpayer a huge amount of money. So these industries all work together to build the kind of need, quote unquote, And Ukraine is a perfect example of that today. Not for nothing did the New York Times report on some of the CEOs actually talking in meetings about how their shareholders and potential stock buyers ought to pay attention to Ukraine because Lockheed and Raytheon and all the rest of these guys, their stocks were just going to skyrocket because of what was happening in Ukraine. This is a war industry. And what happened in 1994 and the years following was the war industry got a hold of the process of NATO expansion, along with other interests, and it was Katie bar the door. Let's go. Let's go right up to the steps of Moscow if we want to. How prescient Eisenhower was when he coined the phrase military-industrial complex, originally I understand in the speech where he referred to it. Military-industrial-congressional-university think tank, research, you name it. They are everywhere now. They're all over my campus at William & Mary now. They're all over my campus with new proposals, new money. It's very hard for these schools to turn this money down, especially a public university like William & Mary. 
Let's go right to the current situation. If you were Joe Biden and Secretary of State Blinken, what would you be doing about this Ukraine situation? First thing I'd do is walk into the closet and say, please, God, if I believe in God, I'd say, please, God, give me some imagination and give me some diplomatic skill. I'd do that before I did anything else because we're totally devoid of diplomatic skill. And we have no imagination at all. And with imagination goes something called empathy. That is to say, the ability to put yourself in the other fellow's shoes or the other woman's shoes and see it the way they see it. We can't do that. Blinken and Solomon are such amateurs against someone like Sergei Lavrov, the Soviet foreign minister, or the Russian foreign minister, who is one of the best diplomats I've ever met, maybe equaled only in, on the global stage right now by Wang Yi, the counselor for and foreign minister for Xi Jinping in China. So we're up against some pretty formidable foes, and we're playing amateurs. We're playing amateurs. They need to start thinking, and they are, thank God, I hope I've been debriefed carefully yesterday, about what they can concede under the table if they need to. The best diplomacy is conducted under the table, not in the Klieg lights. And what they concede is exactly what has got Putin's military leaders so concerned, so fearful. And that is ballistic missile defense launchers, which can double as Tomahawk missile with nuclear warhead launchers and other things like that, that they fear, they see them creeping into places like Poland, maybe into the Baltics, and they fear they're going to get even closer and reduce their warning time and reduce such things as their ability to respond to an attack. And people say, I've had these debates ongoing for the past six months. Well, why are they fearful of NATO attacking them? Come on, put yourself in their shoes. Wait until you see a Chinese battle fleet steaming in the Gulf of Mexico, 12 miles and one inch off Corpus Christi, Texas. Wait until you see that. It is China's every right under international law to do that. They could do that 24-7 all year long. What do you think Washington would say about that? Well, reverse the situation and put yourself in Putin's shoes. We are the most arrogant empire I think, that's been around for at least a couple hundred years. And that includes the British, so that's arrogant. Let's reverse the question here. What do you think Putin would settle for? I think he's let it be known what he'd settle for, and I think that's what we're working on now. And that is, as I said, the most dangerous weaponry not being in Ukraine. And a tacit understanding that Ukraine won't be a member of NATO, not in the foreseeable future anyway. It's kind of like when Colin worked out the deal with his chief, actually Chen Shi Chen, in China, when our EP3 went down on Hainan Island and it had 24 sailors aboard, as I recall, and they captured them and they captured the plane and some very delicate equipment. And we were in a crisis mode. This was April 2001. And Powell took over immediately. He didn't even let Rumsfeld or Cheney or even the president get in it. He took over immediately. He solved the situation. And what we did, in essence, was we apologized in English in America, and the Chinese apologized in Chinese in China. And <laughs> that's all that happened. And that's diplomacy. We essentially said, okay, you were in error. And the other side said, no, you were in error. Well, I accept that you were in error. I accept that I was in error. You know, you do that. 
and you agree to it, and, and then the crisis is over. Well, I think that's the way it's going to be handled with regard to Ukraine and the future of NATO. Everyone will know that it's been settled that way, but neither capital is going to crow about it. Now, I worry about us, though, because unlike H.W. Bush, as I told you at the beginning of the end of the Cold War, not wanting to beat his chest over it and everything, not wanting to stand over his enemy and hoot and holler about how he'd beaten him. We tend to be that way more and more these days. So, and, and Joe Biden has a particular proclivity for that sort of thing, especially when his polls are slipping. So I hope that domestic politics and the Republicans, of course, make it impossible for Biden to be this diplomatic. Well, it seems there's a very clear path to settling this in Ukraine. One is Ukraine is not part of NATO, and NATO itself admits that it will be many years before Ukraine meets the criteria to join NATO. So Ukraine becomes a neutral area, like the yep. Austria was given neutrality after World War II. And exactly. the U.S. and NATO pull back on the missile launchers, which have no business being that close to the Russian border. So when that's settled... We can look back and say maybe what Biden was doing, playing tough, is a message to China and Taiwan. You think so? That might be the case, and that might be the way they're looking at it. I don't think that's the right approach to China either. That's another story altogether. And I do think that Taiwan and China, South China Sea, and all that's associated with China and a possible war with her is more serious than this business with Russia. Not least because Russia is basically losing population. It has less population than Pakistan. Russia's economy is essentially characterized as one person in Russia, put it to me yesterday, as a gas station with a capital city. So Russia is not the formidable opponent that China is. China has surpassed us in economic power certainly in purchasing power parity and in industrial output has surpassed us majorly and is rapidly, if not already surpassing us in many areas of high technology, unlike we say all the time. So China presents us with a much more formidable foe than Russia and, and is therefore a much more dangerous situation. But at the end of the day is, again, yesterday in another webinar we talked about, why is everyone concerned about all these cruise missiles and other armaments on their borders and so when those submarines are cruising out there with enough nuclear weaponry to destroy us all in about oh maybe 24 hours and that's the real thing we ought to be talking about and i'm hearing hints that these talks with regard to ukraine and nato expansion in general and so forth with russia are going to lead to a much more serious discussion of nuclear armaments, because there, other than the climate crisis, is the most serious threat confronting the human race. You believe that'll be the silver lining coming out of I certainly hope on so. Ukraine? I certainly hope uh, so, because we have we'll just it... unraveled. We have unraveled arms control, starting with George Bush and the ABM Treaty, moving on to the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, on to the Open Skies Treaty, and almost the new start. We almost let that go, too. Donald Trump almost let that go. We need desperately to get back to a good, solid, manageable arms control regime. And we need to drag kicking and screaming, if necessary, countries like Israel and North Korea into that regime. Well, who do you think is going to make the call from the United States? 
for that kind of global embrace of serious arms control treaties, bringing up to date, bringing in more countries, and enforcing the Nonproliferation Act, which is now not enforced. Well, that's Who's going to make the call in the U.S.? It has to go slowly and methodically. It can't go, you know, oh, everybody tomorrow morning we're going to do this. The first thing, the first step I would take is to bring China in in a serious way before they start acting on what is a gestating decision right now to build far more nuclear weapons so they can ride out a first strike, changing Mao's philosophy of we only need as many as necessary to deter. Uh, they only have a couple hundred, 300 right now. They could build 10,000 overnight virtually. They have such a powerful economy. But your question is, who's going to do it? And my answer is, I'm looking at the midterms. Uh, Republicans are going to take both houses of Congress. I'm looking at 2024. We may have another coup, or we may have an insurrection, <laughs> depending on who wins, who loses. I don't see the United States leading it. So my answer is to you, I'm very pessimistic about anyone in the West leading this necessary move to get nuclear weapons under control once again. What interest does China have in taking the lead? They like to be number one. Why don't they take the lead? Well, well, that's a good question. And if you put it to Xi Jinping and you had a decent conversation about it with him, I'm not so sure it wouldn't be productive. I don't think the Chinese, having been very close to their central party school now three or four times and listening to their strategic palaver, if you will, I don't think the Chinese like nuclear weapons very much, much the way the Iranians don't like nuclear weapons very much, if you read their fatwas. It's religious with them, but with the Chinese, it's, it's a matter of 5,000 years of civilization, and you might say a little more astute look at things like nuclear weapons than America is capable of. And so we need to take advantage of that, and we need to sit down and we need to talk seriously, all of us eventually, all of the nuclear weapon states, and talk seriously about how we save the human race from this scourge. Looking at what's coming after that, or what's already here, it's here. 28 February, the UN group is going to release the report on climate change, and it's going to blow some people's socks off. We are way behind. We are terribly behind. If we get to 1.5 degree rise, which we are inevitably going to, it is going to be a different way of life for every human being on this planet. If we get to two we're going to lose a lot of human beings on this planet. So this is a huge crisis that we need cooperation to tackle, not this antagonistic approach to international relations we're seeing demonstrated right now with regard to Ukraine. Let's ask you for a short-term prediction. How do you think in the next two months the Ukraine situation is going to be resolved? Well, I think it will resolve itself in what we were just talking about. It might be a little nasty and a little messy because Ukraine is one of the most corrupt governments and government structures in the world, and that's saying something. But it'll resolve itself in a what I call for now six years, a studied neutrality for Ukraine. And that neutrality may have features as some of those that were in some of the agreements that have been achieved already. It might have a sort of autonomy in one particular part of it. Maybe it'll have a different arrangement in Kiev in terms of Russian influence, U.S. influence, European influence in general. But it'll be a neutral country, and there'll be a dying down of the talk about it being a member of NATO, 
maybe even an elimination of that talk after a few years. And things will go on. And we'll have probably more brouhaha over the Baltics or look at what's happening in the Balkans right now. The Serbs are getting restive again, looking at Bosnia-Herzegovina with jealous eyes again. They've already pretty much occupied the northern part on the other side of the river of Kosovo. So, you know, the Balkans are always a place to watch. Here's something that happened the other day that I think is a very prescient remark. It was this Russian journalist, Fyodor Lugnov. And he said, you know, this Ukraine crisis and the other little crises surrounding it just might be a mark of the third change of Euro-Atlantic security since 1940. And he started talking about the Paris Accord and the Helsinki Final Act. And, you know, the Helsinki Final Act, I remember people poo-pooing it when it occurred, saying, you know, especially Republicans, this doesn't mean much. It's not about real power. So, well, that's part of what empowered Gorbachev to implement Glasnost and Perestroika. And it brought down the Soviet Union. So the Helsinki Final Act was more formidable than people predicted at the time. Well, Luganov said, we need something like that today. He didn't say this, but I thought this afterwards. What I'd make the three fundamental precepts, knowing that they weren't going to be accomplishable 100%, just like Helsinki, but I'd make the three fundamental precepts of a new accord something like this. One, the U.S. denounces any desire further in the future to dominate Western Europe economically, commercially, militarily, and so forth. Second, Moscow gives up the dream of resurrecting the Soviet Union's domination of Eastern Europe. And three, and extremely important, the now 750 million Europeans get their political act together, Brexit notwithstanding, and form something that makes sense politically and otherwise. Now, that's the most difficult one, and just my sighting of the Balkans and the recent rumblings there is a, is a case in point. But Europe needs to get its act together. Been trying to ever since the end of the Cold War, but they've been unable to do so. Had a conversation with a Danish newspaperman yesterday telling me about how alarmed he was that his country, his leaders, were kowtowing to Washington over Ukraine. And I said, you have a right to be that way, to feel that way. You need to stop doing that. All of you need to stop doing that. And you need to stand up and do the things that you can do if you are roughly unified and you apply your muscle to the task. You know, look at Germany, look at France, look at all the power that you have in the combination that you geographically possess, almost three quarters of a billion people now. I know you got problems, you got, you know, basket cases like Albania and so forth, but you should be able to generate enough power to make a balancing mechanism between the duo on the right, China and Russia, and the single power on the left, the United States, especially since the United States power is, is receding majorly every day. Let's get something going here, and then let's get what we get going pointed at the two disasters on the horizon, nuclear weapons and climate. We're speaking with retired Colonel Larry Wilkerson, major peace advocate, arms control advocate, with many years of experience in the U.S. government. Larry, tell us about the veterans groups like Veterans for Peace or Iraq Veterans 
against war, how effective are they? And to what degree do you work with the Friends Committee and the traditional peace groups? I've really been impressed with some of the veterans groups and what they're doing. There are a lot of vets in America who are very concerned with what they call endless stupid wars. And what they understand they did in their roles in some of these endless stupid wars. I think one of the reasons we have such a high post-traumatic stress quotient and such a high degree, unprecedented degree of suicides in the armed forces is in part produced by the fact that in three, two, three tours in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever, they did some things that they wouldn't have been proud of even if they had done them for peace, freedom, liberty in America. And now they realize they didn't do them for any of those things. They did them for the military industrial complex. They did them for George W. Bush and his reelection or whatever. And that's very traumatic with them. It causes some second, third, fourth level thoughts that often lead to suicide, I think. But many of them have taken to the hustings, as you suggested, and either politically or in some other way, helping veterans or doing some pretty powerful work across the country. Vote Vets is one of the organizations that I would single out for that. They back candidates who basically are restraint, using Quincy's terms, restraint politicians. They are more for diplomacy and peace than they are for bombs, bullets, bayonets, war, and and making the empire great again. So I'm very heartened by what's happening with them. I'm very disheartened by what I'm seeing with regard to what we call Christian nationalism in the ranks. I think Christian nationalism had a lot to do with the 6th January insurrection, and I'm seeing it across the board in all the services with regard to a very vivid example of vaccinations where we had thousands in each of the services who refused to get vaccinations, many alleging religious grounds and so forth. And we even have the Secretary of Defense now, having said and has started in some of the services, throwing these people out of the service. Now, the Congress came in, of course, and said they had to get honorable discharges. And when you think about why that's the case, it's very worrisome. They have to get honorable discharges because the military services are having such a hard time recruiting under the all-volunteer force concept that they're afraid these people will go home to places like West Virginia, Oklahoma, Alabama, Mississippi, and pollute the ground. They'll badmouth the services, and so they'll pollute the ground, and they won't be able to recruit in what are their richest recruiting areas. But this is a very worrisome feature of Christian nationalism in this country right now, what it's doing to the armed forces, and generally speaking, what it means across America when you have some of them turning into people like those who marched uh, on the Capitol on 6 January. But basically, veterans, I think, are doing a lot of positive things in the country, politically, helping their fellow veterans, and so forth. We are not treating them all that well. I learned the other day that the number of homeless veterans is just skyrocketed. I said the suicides are off the charts. We have veterans without work as well as veterans without homes. In the Tidewater area alone in Virginia, there I'm told there are some 40,000 homeless veterans. It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed picture, but I'm, I'm very happy with what some of them are doing to try and militate against this business of forever wars, endless wars, stupid wars. And they speak with credibility because they've been over there and they've been deceived 
even in 2005, two years after invasion of Iraq, there was a professional poll that the Pentagon allowed of U.S. soldiers, including Marines in Iraq, and over 70% said they wanted the U.S. to get out of Iraq. That was in 2005. Let's go to Steve and David. Yeah, very quickly, Colonel Wilkerson, because I know you're on a tight schedule and our next guest has actually arrived. I wanted to know, do we even need NATO at all? No. No. As a matter of fact, in 1989, Powell turned to me at Fort McPherson in Atlanta, Georgia, and he said, you know, when Cole goes and Mitterrand goes and all the other European leaders who don't have their feet in World War II, the transatlantic link is gone and NATO will go with it. And I said, well, maybe it should, since it was formed primarily to combat communism and the Soviet Union, and they're gone. And he smiled and said, yeah, maybe you're right. What have we done in order to change that equation? We have put it into out-of-area operations, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya. NATO led, led the action in Libya. How does that square with Article 5, the most important? important part of NATO and attack on one is an attack on all. That's the distinguishing feature of NATO. We have adulterated that. We've murdered it. We're putting NATO all over the world in order to try and give it relevance and to save it. We should let it go. David? Yes, thank you, Colonel. The United States has frozen $7 billion of Afghanistan's assets. Last Friday, President Biden issued an executive order that would split those assets. $3.5 billion would go towards humanitarian aid for the Afghanistan people, the Afghan people. And $3.5 billion would go towards potential legal claims brought by American families who lost loved ones on September 11th. Should the people of Afghanistan be forced to pay restitution to the victims of 9-11? You know, that's a difficult question to answer. On the one hand, most of that money is probably U.S. taxpayer money. Given all the corruption in Afghanistan, read Sarah Che's book, Thieves of State, if you want to know how filthy Afghanistan was in terms of corruption. And most of the money that was wasted and lost there was U.S. taxpayer dollars. The second point I would make is that Biden has a political problem. His polls are slipping and so forth, and is grasping for things that might you know, put a little patina on his political problem that would be positive. I understand that. But I also understand the implication in your question that we're, we're really putting the Afghan people in trouble here. The purpose, of course, is to put the Taliban government in trouble. And if you go back and check my remarks earlier, as Kabul fell, I said, I hope we react this way. And one of the this is was we give the Taliban all manner of assistance in attempting to run the country if they will be at least reasonable in that effort. And that means not returning to the past and keeping women out of schools and so forth and so on. And I, I had every reason to believe from my insight into the talks that the Taliban would be amenable to that just to get the money and just to be able to run the country. So you're killing that also. You're being harsh, you're trying to bring them down. And you're trying to bring them down on the backs of the people who are basically innocent. So it's a mixed bag. I don't know what the right answer is. I probably wouldn't have done it. Colonel, did the Taliban mm -hmm. attack us? How do you mean? 9-11. Uh, were the Taliban behind 9-11? No, but they were, Mullah Omar at least, it was untalkable out of 
his protection of Osama bin Laden. So in that respect, I understand why most Americans would probably not understand the distinction and would probably support punishing the Taliban. They're not very savory people either. Well, on that point, we have to conclude. We've been talking with retired Colonel Larry Wilkerson, who teaches at William and Mary College in Virginia, who is very active in peace movements, arms control movements, enlightenment on foreign policy, drawing on his immense experience in the military and diplomatic departments of the U.S. government over the years, including being chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. Thank you very much, Larry. And before we leave, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Oh, my uh, William & Mary email is on William & Mary's website. It's Lima Bravo, L-B-W-I-L-K, at W-M dot E-D-U. Thank you again, Larry. Thank you for your work and how you bring conscience to your work and connect it to experience. And you never give up. You represent the best of the retired military, in my judgment, and you're networking more and more of these veterans who have to start speaking up more and getting more members in all these groups like Veterans for Peace and others that you've mentioned today. To be continued, thank you very much, Larry. Thank you, Ralph, and thank you for all you've done, too. We've been speaking with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. We'll link to his work at ralphnaderradioHour.com. Up next, we're going to talk about Harriet Tubman and the $20 bill. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, February 4, 2022. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Amazon is quietly funding high school classes that teach students how to work at Amazon in a California county where it's already the largest employer. Students at San Bernardino's Cajon High School have been offered a series of Amazon Pathways courses sponsored by the company since 2019. That's according to a report from Motherboard. The courses feature a curriculum that teaches them, among other things, how to motivate employees without giving them raises while also increasing worker efficiency. The $50,000 grant provided to the school also coaches Cajon High teachers how to establish and develop an effective industry partnership with Amazon. Students enrolled in the classes are also required to do work-based internships at Amazon or a different logistics company. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. With our next guest, we're going to discuss the important historic symbolism in the debate over whose picture deserves to be in our most commonly used paper currency, the $20 bill. David? Clarence Lusain is a professor and former chairman of Howard University's Department of Political Science. He's an activist, scholar, journalist, and author. His latest book is coming out in November, published by City Lights Books. It's called $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman versus Andrew Jackson and the Future of American Democracy. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Professor Clarence Lusain. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Welcome indeed, Clarence. We're seeing a wonderful emergence of information in the schools around our country on black history. I remember in my education, the only figure that we even mildly referred to was Frederick Douglass. And now you're researching and have written about the life of Harriet Tubman, who had an extraordinary career between sometime, I guess, 1840 and 1913. 
and is now being proposed during the Obama administration of having her visage on the $20 bill in place of Andrew Jackson. You know, there's a reason why Donald Trump admires Andrew Jackson, because he was a precursor of violating and challenging the laws of the land and destroying thousands of Cherokee natives and other bigoted actions during his area of power. And so the symbol was to replace him with Harriet Tubman. But before we talk about her remarkable career, I want you just to give our audience a little description of this remarkable book that you put out a few years ago called The Black History of the White House. Yep. So thank you for mentioning that. So when Obama was running for president, I received a number of requests to write about Obama. And at the time, there were dozens of books coming out, uh, including Obama had written about himself. But one of the things that struck me was that for many people in the country, white Americans, but other people as well, there was no real sense of history and what had been the experience of Black people in the White House, both from the staff side, but also from what happened before the Civil War. And so City Lights, which has a long and really honorable history of pulling together all these experiences that other publishers often don't look at, said, fine, it would be great if I write a book about what happened before Obama in terms of the Black experience. And in the process of writing that book, I begin to uncover these stories of Black people who had been in the White House, who had been enslaved, Black people who had escaped from the White House, the first African-American who was on the Secret Service, who was driven out by racism. So all of these untold narratives that give a fuller picture of what the White House actually is and how it's been a prism for race in the country makes up what I tried to do with that book. Did you also indicate that Blacks helped build the White House? And built the White House and, in fact, built Washington, D.C. when the country first formed in the late 1780s, Washington, D.C. did not exist. This was where I'm at right now, was a jungle, rocks and trees and boulders. And so it was projected correctly that it would take about 10 years to clear the area and build the essential constructions, including Congress the Capitol, and the White House. And in that period, while George Washington initially wanted labor coming from Europe, that didn't happen. So just like every major construction that took place in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries in this country, in the 19th century, slave labor was employed. And Michelle Obama mentioned this at the 2000 and I believe 16 or 12 national convention, and it created a bit of a stir because it was, it was new information to most people, but absolutely, slave labor was critical in building the White House. Thank you for that history. Let's turn to Harriet Tubman. What motivated her to do what she did in those critical years before the Civil War, during the Civil War, and after the Civil War? Can you give us a description? So, Raph, you're raising a question that often is not raised about Harriet Tubman, which is, what did she do after the Civil War? 
So she's best known for having escaped slavery herself in the 1840s. She just was a determined young woman and said she was not going to live all her life enslaved. But unlike many others, she came back and rescued other individuals, family members, and many people that she did not know. And as you can imagine, it was the most dangerous work possible, both in terms of just being on the road and most of her effort at helping people escape took place in the middle of winter. So just freezing to death, you can imagine. But of course, the real danger was that very quickly she became number one on the fugitive list for slave catchers. And she was never caught. And every single individual she went to get, she brought back safely. So those heroics became pretty well known right as the Civil War was breaking out in 1861. She transitioned from being someone who went to rescue people to working with the Union Army. She was a nurse. She was a spy. She was a scout. She was the first woman to lead a military raid. This was on the Combahee River, South Carolina, where she and the soldiers she led rescued 700 people who were enslaved. So all that happened during the war. Some is that she did not sit on her hands after 1865. She continued to be engaged. She was part of the suffrage movement. She went to not only the women's organizations that were led by some of the you know well-known white women, but also there were Black women who were engaged in the suffrage movement, but also around voting rights. Her last words, actually, before she died in 1913, as you mentioned, was to send encouragement to Black women who were participating in some of the suffrage efforts. So her entire life was one where she was dedicated to inclusion and what I argue in the book, democracy with a small d. And to me, it's always been important to link the struggle for racial justice with the struggle for expanding democracy and Harriet Tubman embodied that nonstop. She was such a woman of action. Did she actually write down some of her observations or her beliefs, what motivated her like Frederick Douglass did in a number of books, or is she just focusing on getting things done? So she never fully learned to read and write, unlike Frederick Douglass. And so there's not a lot that she wrote, but she gave lots of interviews and she met mm-hmm. with lots of journalists and researchers over her life. Now, much of what was said about her during her lifetime, in fact, were embellishments, not from her, but from others. There were rumors that there were, you know, thousands of dollars offered for her, that, you know, she helped a thousand people escape. And these were exaggerations, none of which she needed. Her life in and of itself is just remarkable. But she did give interviews and she did address some of the issues I talked about in terms of voting and suffrage. She spent time in her later years building a home for seniors and for seniors who were poor. So, you know, in every single way she could, she saw herself serving the community and doing what she could. And again, someone who never had any formal education, but, you know, she knew more about the world than, you know, many people who had plenty of education. 
Well, she wasn't treated very well. She struggled to get her pay when she was employed by the Union Army during the Civil War. And afterwards, she tried to get her pay, and she contacted members of Congress, and she didn't get much of a a pension. Can you talk about that? Because it really reflects the way the establishment treated her after all she did for the Union cause. So that's exactly right. So she did not just volunteer for the Union Army. She was contracted by the Union Army. And again, she played a number of roles as a nurse, as a scout, as a spy, dangerous roles, risky roles, hard working roles. And when it was over, she later applied for a pension because the federal government was giving pensions to people who had been in the military. And she was denied. She fought for literally decades. Finally, she was able to get her husband's pension. She had remarried after the Civil War, and her husband had been a veteran. And when he passed, they finally were able to work it out. And that's where, you know, one of the great ironies kind of emerges is that her ultimate pension was $20 a month, which, of course, fits in with this movement now and the effort to put her on the $20 bill. At the time that Treasury Secretary Lou made the announcement, apparently he was unaware of that particular history, so he never mentioned that particular coincidence. But certainly that was a critical part of her life. And there have been efforts to still get a pension for her, talk to her family members. The main problem with her getting a posthumous pension is that she did not have any direct heirs. She remarried, but she never had any children of her own. So there are plenty of relatives because she has brothers and sisters, but no direct descendants. And what's the likelihood that she'll appear on the $20 bill after years of struggle? Well, it should happen. The Trump administration, I believe, wanted to, but never officially killed the deal. There were other complications beyond Trump's own reluctance to do it. One is that it was required by law. There are security procedures that require that U.S. currency periodically be changed, often invisible to to many people, but sometimes it's visible. For example, the image of the uh, person may be larger than in the previous bill. But also the bills require this was coming out of a Supreme Court case, they also have to be developed for the disabled. And so that requires some very special kind of development. So although when Secretary Liu made the announcement, there was sort of a hint that it would take a couple of years. And in fact, he had projected that it could happen by 2020, which would be the 100th year anniversary of the 19th Amendment. It actually really was not possible. And even if Trump wanted to do it, it was not going to happen during the Trump administration. So the projections now probably 2029, 20, 2030 in that area. And I should also mention that other currencies will also have changes as well, including the $5 bill and the $10 bill, not on the front, but on the back. Now, there's still an effort to not just have Tubman on the face of the $20 bill, but to not have Jackson on the back of the $20 bill, because that's what's being projected now, that Jackson would not be removed. He would just be put on the back of the bill. 
For people who want to know more about Harriet Tubman, what's the best book? And they may want to give it to their elementary and high school libraries. Okay, so there are actually tons of books, both for young adults as well as works that are by uh, scholars. Uh, Bound for Glory, I think that's the name of it, by uh, Larson. It's one of the better books because it came out later, so it actually made a lot of corrections on work that had been done in the past and was able to get to some records that were not available. One, for example, and this is the truth, there had always been a mystery about exactly when Harriet Tubman was born. And that was because for many people who were enslaved, of course, there was not always those records. But in research over the last few years, I actually discovered the day she was born, which was March 15th, 1822. So actually her 200th year anniversary is coming up. What's even more remarkable about that is that Andrew Jackson was born on March 15th. What a coincidence. Clarence, can you give the title and author of that book once more? Bound for the Promised Land by Kate Larson is really a great research and well-written book about Harry Tubman's life. Very good. Steve, David, some comments? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm looking at a list of who's on our dollar bills, and there are a lot of slaveholders. There's George Washington, Jefferson, Madison. With the statues coming down, are we going to get to a, a point where we're going to start taking the slaveholders off our money? Maybe. So, again, I think that there are ranges. You're absolutely right. Even Benjamin Franklin, for example, at one point in his life had individuals who were enslaved to him, at least one. But I would draw somewhat of a distinction with Andrew Jackson. As Ralph mentioned, I think it was Ralph, not only did Jackson's what he committed in terms of genocide, massacres relative to Native American people, and set the stage for the Trail of Tears. Jackson was also a slaveholder and a slave trader, and a brutal one at that. So when you look at his record, to me, it stands out far more so than some of the others. But 12 out of the first 16 presidents were slaveholders. Not something we're necessarily taught when we taught American history, but those are the facts. If you look at the Washington Post just last month, and they just updated it, did some research on slaveholders who had been in Congress, and it's over 1,700. So there's a long, long record of individuals and given you know what how the country evolved who were slaveholders and so i think you know requires some measurement and uh, clearly all of these individuals are not going to be removed but some i believe are more egregious and more deserve a more critical lens and with jackson he's basically been ignored there are statues of jackson there are buildings named after him and you know that i think needs to be challenged a lot has happened, as you mentioned, David, in the last few years, for example, around Woodrow Wilson. Wilson $100,000 bill. I'm looking at a $100,000 bill right now. I'm seeing yeah. his face. Well, again, Woodrow Wilson, you know, he, you know, was president during World War I. 
and attempted to create the League of Nations and, you know, was president of Princeton. So he's kind of had those accolades, but he was also the person who reinstituted segregation in Washington, D.C. and in the U.S. government and just had an atrocious record. And so you're starting to see changes relative to his honorifics here in Washington, D.C., for example, one of the prominent high schools was named after Woodrow Wilson. And just last year, they voted to change the name. And we saw at Princeton, for example, that they changed the name of at least one building that had been named after Woodrow Wilson. So I think that, you know, there are times when there's a sense of recognition that the honors that were given to some of these individuals upon further examination should be drawn back. Well, we've reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Dr. Clarence Lusain, who's a professor and director of international affairs program at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much, Clarence. All right. Thank you, guys. You guys have a great day. We've been speaking with Professor Clarence Lusain. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. That's our show. I want to thank our guests again, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson and Professor Clarence Lusain. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out right now. But for you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. A transcript of the show will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episodes are posted. And it will be a blue link just above the audio player for those of you trying to search it out. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, you can get it for free by going to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. And be active. You know what's wrong. Rise up. Don't let the system hold you down. Say you're tired of trying. 